When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This podcast contains explicit language. This week, America gained new insight into the fraught relationship between Donald Trump and his erstwhile White House strategist, Steve Bannon. It's like a Shakespearean drama, but just the parts where people insult and stab each other. SV Date joins to discuss. Then HuffPost's Luke O'Brien breaks down his reporting on Andrew Anglin, one of the top propagandists of the alt-right, neo-Nazi, white nationalist, whatever you want to call it, movement. It's a story that sheds light on extremism in America, and it provoked an angry and very personal backlash. And finally, this week, Trump stepped up his long-established habit of tweeting ill-advised threats at nuclear-powered foreign leaders. Mike Fuchs from the Center for American Progress tells us whether it's time to start stocking up on canned food and hazmat suits. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this is So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics podcast about things that happened in politics. Hello and welcome to So That Happened. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by Elise Foley. Hello. And S.V. Date. Hello, Arthur. And on Thursday, we woke up to snow, which was you know, fun and pretty. And people in D.C. had their school canceled, which caused disruptions for work. And everyone who lives here from somewhere else did what they always do and complained that, well, where I'm from, this isn't a snowstorm. And people in D.C. really need to get their act together. And I just wanted to say that uh, that's real disrespectful. <laughs> well, I want to say that I'm from Colorado and, and? – no, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> yeah. kidding. Things uh, pe- in Colorado, they're uh, more set up for taking care of it. it uh, it's different. It reminded me of how people – and I hear this a lot as a D.C. native. Oh, I've never met somebody who's actually from D.C. And there's a tendency to just forget that people who are from D.C. and live here exist. It's not a coincidence to me, in my mind, that uh, most of those people are black, and it's also not a coincidence that nobody who lives here has voting representation in Congress. So that's what the snow made me think of today. Anyway, we have much more important (laughs) things to talk about, which is the incredible drama playing out in the Donald Trump administration. This week's drama is mostly focused on a new book by a journalist named Michael Wolff who apparently just sat around in the White House because Donald Trump uh, gave him a pass and they're so disorganized they didn't know he was there, just <laughs> eavesdropping on everything they said. He was there at least a dozen times. This was confirmed by the White House yesterday. And he had access to all kinds of stuff. And uh, interestingly, and perhaps because of this, uh, this was the reason for this, it happened early in the administration when things were totally chaotic, completely chaotic. I mean... Reince Priebus was the chief of staff, although he didn't really have that much power because the president didn't really respect him. And so 
if Michael Wolf could just get the president's approval to be there, all was good. Who was to say no, especially since he already had Steve Bannon's help in getting in there? So the rift between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump exploded as a result of this book uh, because in the book, of which we've read excerpts, Steve Bannon says he's uh, what what were we? well some of the some of the juicier ones was well that meeting in Trump Tower with the Russians that was kind of treasonous and Don Jr. shouldn't have done that and boy are they nuts and why didn't they call the FBI and uh, as an aside he said if I had done that I would have had the meeting somewhere else like in New Hampshire <laughs> and then now I only had the lawyers involved right. so that way we could deny it if need be but nonetheless calling the uh, a son uh, treasonous and then saying that. Uh, one of the daughters, uh, Ivanka, was dumb as a brick, I believe. Um, you know, didn't help. Now that's a red line for Trump going after his family. Something that's clearly always uh, annoyed him very much. And this is Steve Bannon, the the person most closely associated with Trump's political strategy, say you know, just shredding a year and a half worth of talking points about the Russia investigation being totally exactly. fraudulent, right? And so. That that did you think that the that Donald Trump took this quietly? <laughs> took the higher road. Ha, ha, ha. I will now no, read. give the book some pu- free publicity. The White House said, "Right, let's drive uh, up some books." No, else. I don't. I don't. I, that is the what happens. But I think this is genuine anger. Yes. from Trump, who who said this in a statement. Steve Bannon has nothing to do with me or my presidency. When he was fired, he not only lost his job, he lost his mind. Steve was a staffer who worked for me after I had already won the nomination by defeating 17 candidates, often described as the most talented field ever assembled in the Republican Party. Now that he is on his own, Steve is learning that winning isn't as easy as I make it. Oh, my God. It goes on and on. It does. It's a diatribe. It, 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 had it been tweets, there would have been like 30 of them had it been you know, pulled together. That's why we had a statement, I think. I think it wouldn't have been as well written in Twitter form. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this was dictated and maybe some of it was cleaned up. But this was definitely his voice. I mean, this is – I could hear him saying some of these things. You know, well, barely a staff. Talking about winning. Know. Absolutely. Right. It's all about winning and, uh, and he didn't help me and I got here on my own. Basically. So I have a question. How much of this uh, – obviously Trump takes it very seriously when he's insulted, his family is insulted. How much of it is also the fact that uh, – Thanks in part to Bannon pushing, um, you know, a, a alleged creep, uh, Roy Moore, in Alabama lost a Republican Senate seat. How much yeah. does that have to do with it? I think almost nothing. I think number one is I think as Arthur pointed out, this kind of destroys the argument that there's nothing to the Russia investigation when you're. Head of your campaign suggests, oh yeah, this was treasonous, and not only that. If you go a little bit deeper, he points out that. What the special, in his view, what the special counsel is really looking at is money laundering. Well, money laundering is not one of those things that you know. The, the new defense, by the way, on collusion is uh, everyone colludes. Collusion is good. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not illegal. Okay, money laundering is illegal, and so people go to jail for it all the time. And if that is what is at the root of this investigation, then yeah. Now, money laundering is is what they hit Paul Manafort with. Uh, that is and, correct, and it's essentially disguising. Your the source of your income, because, either because it's illegal or because you want to avoid taxes, or because right you you don't want to admit where it's coming from. And in this case, if if some of that money is coming from sources like in I don't know Russia, 
that would be a very bad thing for the president and his family. And that, I think, is exactly what uh, Steve Bannon was suggesting, in, in at least in those excerpts that we saw in New York Magazine. And that's the significance of... Of the, the significance of it being a money laundering focus is that that could potentially extend to Trump's personal finances, which he's gone to such great lengths to conceal. Right, and which gets right back to what was he doing in Russia in 2013, and who did he meet with, and how far along did that Trump Tower Moscow project go? And oh yeah, they were still talking about it during, as, as late as 2015. So yeah, this brings up all those things that they claim had nothing to do with anything, and now a guy who was in the White House up until a few months ago, he was in the White House up until a few months ago, has said this is actually real and this is actually a big deal. So what will be the significance of the Trump-Bannon rift going forward? Now, there's already this week an effort for candidates to differentiate whether they're Trump or Bannon, you know, uh, conservative candidates running in Republican primary elections. Uh, Will this be significant politically or is it just another sideshow? I think it's kind of a sideshow, and I think it always was a sideshow. Um, Steve Bannon likes to claim he's more powerful when he's outside the White House. I mean, that's just beyond silly. I mean, come on. He was <laughs> he was like the number two person, number one person in the White House, and to say that that is less significant than being the head of a website? I mean, come on. I mean, who's he kidding? So that's where he is, and that's where it has been since uh, since he left in, uh, in, in in late summer. Now, I think that a bigger deal— that so far has not been played up as much uh, because of the Bannon stuff is this book paints a portrait of a guy who doesn't know what's going on, who doesn't care, and he's treated like a toddler. And in detail and with on-the-record quotes, that's a big deal. When a deputy chief of staff is saying that he's incapable of making these decisions, he doesn't know anything, and you have to spell things out for him as if he's a child, that's kind of a big deal. Well, it's not... Simply that it's as if he's a child. It's as if he's quite senile or has some other impairment. Uh, the most chilling detail is that he'll repeat himself frequently within a short period of time and, and a period of time that actually has apparently shortened, according to these people who are Michael Wolf's sources. They say it used to be, you know, in an hour you would hear the story, the same story with the same facial expressions three times. Now it's within half an hour you right. will hear the same story. With the same facial expressions yeah. repeatedly. As an example, it's become not unsurprising to hear questions about the president's mental fitness in the White House briefing room asked of the press secretary. Can you imagine a time when that's been the case before? I mean, this is kind of amazing that is the president crazy, basically, is what we're asking uh, to the White House. Well, we, there, we have had the mental fitness of a president question you know, after Ronald Reagan was – shot and lost a lot of blood and, and had surgeries or questions. Though I, they may have been much less public than this, but we've had this kind of situation before where, where somebody's uh, potentially impaired in the White right. House. Well, obviously, President Reagan was physically impaired, and uh, the onset of uh, dementia and possibly Alzheimer's later on in his second term, that became much better known after he left the Oval Office. Yeah. The one time that it's been a case from a, a younger president while things were kind of a mess was, of course, Richard Nixon when he started drinking heavily in the White House during the during the spring and, and summer of, of 1974. And, uh, you know, there were questions as to what this guy was going to do. And people took it seriously. The chief of staff at the time, the defense secretary at the time, were very concerned about what he might do. 
Do you think this will cause people to take more seriously these questions? I mean, do you think that there is any chance that he gets somehow ousted because people say he's not fit? Or, you know, is that going to have to be something the American people decide? Well, that's actually something that Michael Pence decides, the vice president, because he is the one who can trigger the process that's outlined in the 25th Amendment, which is, you know, removing a president for being unfit. Um, And, you know, no one has asked or people have asked. They've not got an on-the-record response from the vice president. That would be a very touchy thing for him to do. But I can see that something like that probably would only start if if, uh, the president triggered it by doing something so aberrant and so dangerous to the country's security that really the vice president could say, I had no choice but to act. I think absent that nobody should be rooting for that uh, because Trump not Trump would not go along with something like that. It would be a real mess. It would be – yeah, it, it, that would be something. On the other hand, now we've seen uh, Senator Bob Corker who, uh, who runs a foreign relations committee actually hold a hearing about our nuclear weapons and how – uh, that process works, the chain of command from the president down to the people in the silos or on the submarines. And we've actually had the guy in charge of those weapons at the Pentagon in a speech in Canada say, we don't carry out immoral and illegal orders. Okay, okay so that seemed designed to tell the world that, by the way, there are some checks and balances Donald yes, Trump we, we only own. dropped the most moral bombs. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, there is that distinction. Uh, you know, we laugh, but there is a distinction yeah. between uh, a, a four thousand pound or whatever it is, uh, you know, mother of all yeah, bombs, I mean, and a nuclear that weapon. They won't just do anything they're told. That's if it's what illegal they're immoral, saying. That's significant. Yeah, um, Elise. Let's do a little media criticism. People look at the Michael Wolf excerpts from his book uh, Fire and Fury and say, "Well, this guy's got us." sketchy track record and some of the dialogue here appears to be like fully recreated as though he had a recording or had uh you know really been in the room which is not all that plausible does do you does that um make you take it less seriously I mean I I think there has been a level to which everything's been reported just as if it's just total fact and the people who are writing it are also certain that it's correct. Um, at the same time, there's obviously a lot in there that is, you know, on the record. He talked to a lot of people. We know he did have access. And uh, I'm, I'm not the first to say this, but if even a fraction of the stuff in there is true, that's still significant. There's a, a lot in there. Yeah, the, the people quoted aren't uh, exactly uh, suing It's pretty. I I Bannon's tried to kind of be like, no, no, I'm very loyal to the president, but he hasn't exactly said. No one has come and said I didn't didn't say that. That I didn't say it. And it's been reported now that he has recordings. Michael Wolf has okay. He does have recordings of Steve Bannon and his conversations with the deputy chief of staff. I just thought we should. I just think we should uh, bring this up because we should probably dispense with the idea that the reporting is not credible, even though. People think Michael Wolff is weird. Well, you know, whatever about Michael Wolff. But does anything that came out of that book that we've seen so far uh, go against the impression that the president and the White House have given us 
And before that, the candidate and his campaign gave us for the last two and a half years. The answer is no. This is exactly what we've seen. If anyone paying any any attention at all to Donald Trump sees that, yeah, this is who he is. That is now our president. Yeah, there's been plenty of reporting, you know, all throughout Trump's presidency that people are treating him like a toddler. There's right. plenty of quotes right. it's heavily, indicating absolutely. that that's yeah. how they're treating him. Right. So it's not, you know, these are all, you know, big revelations all piled together in the book, but they're not um, a, a huge shock necessarily. I just, in case anyone thought that was an elephant in the room, yeah, get out elephant, no <laughs> elephant. Uh, true story. Yeah. It, you know, and actually on that point that Lisa made, it's, it's kind of like boiling the frog, right? I mean, if you toss a frog directly into a boiling pot of water, he's going to jump out. Whereas if you just start bringing the heat up slowly, frog does, hey, this is okay. It's no, only one more degree than a little Nobody while has ago. ever done that to a frog. That's fake news. After you said you – never mind. <laughs> now, lastly, before we close out, uh, Steve Bannon, the guy uh, at the outset of the Trump presidency was credited as a genius. Before the Michael Wolff thing – Michael Wolff thing aside, he did a terrible job putting conservative candidates in Congress with and, and in the uh, – you know, with the – uh, Roy Moore special election in Alabama. There was the Bannon-ish governor candidate in Virginia. It, it seems like the political genius of Steve Bannon has uh, been wildly overstated. Well, he never ran any campaigns before he jumped into the the Trump machine, whatever such as it was. Um, and also calling him conservative, I think, is an insult to people who actually believe in conservatism. It's more, it's it more uh, uh, racism and protectionism. It's, it's, exactly, it's it's kind of a nationalism with a uh, a heavy dose of white nationalism and a, and a ton of protectionism. We just right. got to say racism. I mean, what, uh, white nationalism isn't that just a way of not saying racism? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> okay, Steve Bannon, see you around. Uh, Elise Foley, SV Date, thanks so much. My pleasure. We'll be right back. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hi, this is Elise Foley, and I'm here with my colleagues, Arthur Delaney. Hello. And Luke O'Brien. Hi. And we are going to talk about neo-Nazis. Um, and specifically, we're going to talk about uh, Luke's quest to find the specific neo-Nazi, Andrew Anglin. Um, Luke wrote a really great piece in The Atlantic uh, about uh, this man, Andrew Anglin, and then has also written for us about um, sort of the way that this guy is trying to hide from getting sued over, uh, you know, 
leading uh, harassment charges against various people, especially uh, Jewish people. Um, so can you explain who is this dude? Andrew Anglin is probably the uh, foremost propagandist for the alt-right, which is a white supremacist movement, mainly a millennial movement. There are some questions about how to define the term, but it's a white supremacist movement. And Anglin has uh, what has been, up until recently, the most popular neo-Nazi site in the world. It's called the Daily Stormer. Can we just call them Nazis? Well, some of them don't like that. So for a, a lot of reasons. In are fact, there good reasons though? I mean, Nazi. No, everyone knows what that is. Like even neo-Nazi, I find makes it you know a little confusing. Yeah, I prefer the colloquial, which is just Nazi. But I actually get neo-Nazis that are mad at me when I call them Nazis. <laughs> they're like, hey, don't associate because they're not. Yeah. I, I'm not literally in the Third Reich. Right. It's a historical term. That's we want a stupid. term for the, the current era in America. So Nazi. regardless, what they want, right, is to have their own white person state. Yeah, they want to they want their or white ethnic state. Ideally to keep things whiter here in America. Well, I, ideally what they'd want is to exterminate anyone they don't like. Okay. That uh, sounds Nazi. But, sounds like but Nazis. Short of that, uh, they're pushing for what they call a white ethno state. Great. Which I like to refer to as uh, Montana. <laughs> and <laughs> And Montana is significant to the story, right? Yes. So, Montana, can you tell us a little bit about what went down there? And this is kind of the cause of one of these legal uh, fights. Yeah, so him. so that's uh, one of the reasons Anglin is being sued. He launched what is called a troll storm against a local Jewish woman there who lives in Whitefish, Montana. She's a realtor. And this woman, Tanya Gersh, had gotten into a a property dispute with the mother of another white supremacist, Richard Spencer. He's the most famous one. He is the most famous one. Now, he would not want to be called a neo-Nazi. Right. I've heard him say it. So I'm not in the Third Reich. You know, it's uh... – Exactly. Even though he did give a speech after Trump got elected where people were Sikh heiling him. So – He's the one who got punched. That's he, how people know who he yeah. is. He did he get punched. Punchy. A few of them have been punched recently. <laughs> there's, been, there's been sort of a, a surge in Nazi punching in recent months. Well, he was punched in the face right while he was giving a really pompous interview on like a D.C. street corner. He was. It was a meme. He was. And, and we are not advocating violence here by no. any means. Uh, but Richard Spencer is a very prominent figure in this alt-right movement. Uh, his family has longstanding ties to Whitefish, Montana, a scenic ski town. And his mother is a, real, a realtor. As well. His mother's a property owner. And she owns a building there that people uh, wanted to protest outside. And this happened after Richard Spencer gave that speech where his audience was Sieg Heiling. Uh, Tanya Gersh is a local realtor. And she started uh, talking to Richard Spencer's mother about what to do about this building. And suggested that Richard Spencer's mother sell it and donate some of the proceeds to charity. This then got turned into uh, an extortion campaign by a Jew. That's how the alt-right played it. And at that point, Andrew Anglin jumped into the fray with his website and an army of trolls that he commands online and attacked and harassed uh, this woman, Tanya Gersh, her family, pretty much the entire town. And this went on for a month he threatened to have an armed march, bus in 200 neo-Nazi skinheads from the Bay Area and march through town with assault rifles. 
uh, and the, the town was kind of paralyzed by this for for uh, almost a month. So that's what he's being sued over by Tanya Gersh. And so the problem, right, is when these people lead these kind of doxing campaigns, often they say, here's this person's info. Do with it what you'd like. We're not saying to, you know, go hurt this person or anything, but here's their info. Or or even to threaten. Yeah, or even to threaten. And, And so the question is whether they can be held accountable for what it is they're doing, right? Yes. I mean, I think there are several questions that come up here. When Andrew Anglin sticks a a disclaimer on a post that he puts up where he's doxing someone knowing that his followers are going to harass this person, menace her, threaten her, Tanya Gersh had to go into trauma therapy because of this. But when Anglin puts this disclaimer up, you know, no violence – uh, how genuine is that, really? Especially Seems not genuine. It's that's not, my uh, it, that's my analysis. It, not it, genuine. It's it's total horsepucky. And the reason why is you when you see these guys talking amongst themselves, their speech is ultra violent, and their real intention is to to actually hurt people and cause harm if they can get away with it. Anglin puts up that disclaimer because there are First Amendment issues at stake here, and that's what this lawsuit is about. Can he be held responsible? for initiating this troll storm against a woman that he knows is going to result in some real harassment. So he's being sued by a private citizen. Why didn't the government prosecute him first? Why isn't that happening? I, th- I think that's a question that we should all be asking and be trying to answer. I think that... There... Well, what does the government say? Well, the government says that until there is a specific threat of violence, a true threat, there's nothing that they can do. Yeah. But there, there's something else uh, at stake here uh, uh, legally and from a criminal perspective as well because this is cyber stalking. This is cyber harassment and there are criminal penalties for that sort of thing. Andrew Anglin is aiding and abetting cyber stalking and cyber harassment, which is also sanctionable criminally. But part of the problem is that Local police departments do not have the resources to investigate this kind of stuff. I mean the Whitefish Police Department is – is it's like a dozen – it's a dozen people, maybe a few more. Nobody trained in investigating cybercrime. So then it becomes a federal matter and then you have to wonder where the FBI has been when it comes to far-right extremists, the violence that they perpetrate, which uh, statistically is actually greater than – the violence that uh, you know, radical jihadist terrorists or whatever you want to call them have have conducted in this country since uh, since nine eleven. So there's sort of a um, a perspective shift that I think needs to happen when it comes to people like this and the true danger that's that's uh, uh, we have to worry about. So in terms of the search for him, it's been kind of interesting, right? So he's kind of made this argument that he cannot be sued. Uh, and can you explain that a little bit and, and kind of what you've found about what his whereabouts might be? Yeah. You know, I don't know whether this is kind of a disingenuous argument that he's advancing in federal court, which would seem inadvisable uh, to kind of troll a federal judge. But what he's <laughs> saying— The guy loves to troll. Yeah. I mean, he can't help it. He really just can't help it. So I don't know what his conversations have been like with his attorney, but what they're asserting— in Montana federal court is that he is outside the jurisdiction of the court 
because he he is not a citizen or a resident of his home state of Ohio, despite being registered to vote there, despite having his business based there, his Nazi business, for which he collects money and mail there. Uh, they are suggesting that he lives in Nigeria. <laughs> and the reason they are suggesting this is because Anglin trolled some CNN reporters this past summer into publishing that he lives in Nigeria. And that is the evidence that they have submitted to the court as, as to – Just his, a CNN article where he said that he lived in Nigeria? Correct. And so they're, sa- they're saying that the federal court cannot get him – uh, does not have jurisdiction over him because he he lives somewhere else. He's not a citizen of any state. There is a legal term. So he's called, not he's not even standing up for himself. He's saying, "Can't sue me. I'm stateless." Right. I mean, he's a tough guy online, but when it comes to actually you know facing the music, he's he's on the run. And I, it could be a just a a legal maneuver. They're just playing games. They're trying to make things difficult for the plaintiff, but. Soon, he's going to have to uh, reveal where he is. The, the judge already is ticked off and told uh, his lawyer, you know, I don't want any more of these games. We need to establish whether this court has jurisdiction over him. Now, if it's proven that he's a citizen or a resident of Ohio, then the federal court in Montana has jurisdiction over him. So you talk to somebody who says they saw him in Ohio. Yeah, I've thought all along that he's been uh, hiding out in Columbus, Ohio, where his his father, who owns quite a few properties in the area, could easily put him up. His father, who also is involved in the Nazi business, uh, having collected money and mail and registered trademarks for his son and some documents for an LLC that he formed. So all the evidence indicates that that he's there. I almost ran into him in February at a court hearing. I'd heard that he was going to have a court hearing to expunge a criminal record. And I tried to catch him at the court, but I missed him by by like 15 minutes. And so, and he admitted to being there then. He was spotted by another one of my sources around that time in Columbus. And then recently, just a couple weeks ago, a process server, a man who was hired to identify and find Andrew Anglin, but who had been taken off the case and didn't have his legal paperwork with him, ran into Anglin in a grocery store outside Columbus. This was just a couple weeks ago. And he attested to that in court. Yes, he submitted an affidavit to court, a sworn statement that he had seen Andrew Anglin. So what happened to you when you reported this for Huffington Post and and The Atlantic? Well, uh, Anglin started coming after me before I'd even written anything about him. He actually started attacking me I wrote a story for uh, HuffPost Highline uh, it, it, that came out November 2016, and it was about the alt-right, and I'd interviewed Anglin, and before I'd even published the story, he started accusing me of fabricating uh, communications that I'd had with the FBI, all of which were over email, so I can easily disprove his <laughs> lies about me. Uh, and so he sent, started sending his trolls after me then. Uh, then what I, kind of stuff? Was it similar like, hey, here's this guy's phone number? Uh, in terms of his doxing of me? Yeah. Yes. He, he published the phone number and the email that I had already made publicly available to anyone who wanted to contact me and then claimed he'd doxed me and then sicked his trolls on me. And so I've been putting up with them for over a year now. Uh, they came after me again uh, multiple times when I was reporting that Atlantic story about him. 
And then they came after me when we published the story about the process server spotting him a couple weeks ago. What's that like having them come after you with the uh, with your phone and email and Twitter, I suppose? Well, it's never fun, you know. I mean, uh, the main difficulty is that you're dealing with uh, some people. A lot of people, I think, have mental illness. There are some delusional types. And they follow his orders. That's what I, I, I fail to comprehend is that this guy who is a self-admitted propagandist, he's a liar who's been proven to be a liar over and over again, says jump and all his little minions jump. So I had guys calling me up before my Atlantic story came out, before I, I literally before I had written a single word of the story. They were calling me up saying, yeah, I read your story in the Atlantic. How dare you write this stuff about Andrew Anglin? And That's what they would say? Yeah, and I'd, and I'd say, oh, did you object to a particular part of the story? Could we discuss that? And they'd say, well, yeah, it was the part where you, you, know, you said this about him or that about him. I'm like, that's funny because the story hasn't even been published yet. I haven't even written it yet. And then I'd get the, you know, there'd be silence on the phone. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I still don't like you, you know, and you're, you're still a you're Jewish-controlled puppet or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I got doxxed as well. Uh, at at one point, so did a lot of journalists, and I mean, it it's just is kind of one of those things where it's like, well, probably nobody will show up at my house, but I don't know. All it takes is one crazy person to be like, uh, yeah, this this person deserves being attacked for being in the media. So That's yeah, right. it's a scary. Oh, it is. Um. All right. Well, you'll have to keep us posted on this search for Andrew England and how this all plays out. It's really interesting. I I will indeed. You'll be reading about it in HuffPost. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Arthur. Thank you. And thank you, Luke. Thank you, guys. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Elise Foley. Hello. And on the phone, we've got Mike Fuchs, a foreign policy expert with the Center for American Progress. Mike, hello. Hey, guys. How's it going? It's going great. We needed you here because the president of the United States is sending tweets about nuclear war. And we thought that, you know, we should get a foreign policy expert for that. So it was probably one of the biggest stories of the week. It was a tweet on January 2nd. It started with this tweet. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the, quote, nuclear button is on his desk at all times, end quote. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I, too, have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. So, um, you know, standard Trump fare in the sense that it's, like, really dumb and transparently insecure and egotistical simultaneously. Uh, but, Mike, how much should we worry about getting blown up? At this point, is this an escalation or just a continuance of what was going on before? Well, look, I think that when you're trying to interpret Donald Trump's tweets, I'm not sure calling a foreign policy expert is the uh, uh, most appropriate thing. You might need to call somebody else. Um, like a psychiatrist? I, you know, a psychiatrist, uh, any number of other. Uh, um, uh, Donald Trump himself. 
Yeah, maybe exactly. Could explain. You know, maybe. Um, I, I'm not sure that foreign policy has anything to do with this. Um, but as you point out, unfortunately, this does have very real world uh, consequences um, when the president uh, does decide to tweet like this. I mean, look, I think that we're stuck here in a place where the president continues to tweet out ridiculous, absurd things that can only serve to increase tensions uh, and the chances of a conflict uh, with nuclear weapons capable North Korea. Uh, but, but at the same time, because he does this so often, I think the North Koreans and frankly, much of the rest of the world uh, are baking this into their calculations. Uh, they kind of expect it now. Uh, it doesn't mean they're not going to respond to it. But, you know, they see this frequently, and in some ways I fear that it's kind of depressing, but they may just be laughing uh, a little bit. And so, yes, this is very, very dangerous. Uh, but, again, at the same time, it's also making us somewhat of a laughing stock. I, now, there's a major context here. Kim Jong-un had made a, did make a speech where he talked about his nuclear capabilities, but also there was an entreaty to South Korea – which was an extremely significant development. Can you explain what's happening there and 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 how Trump's tweet figures into that dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is where I think things get um, pretty complicated. You know, the reality is that what we've seen in the last few days of events with North Korea is that, unfortunately, for the United States right now, North Korea and Kim Jong-un, its leader, appear to have a clear and uh, – carefully orchestrated strategy uh, to get what they want, uh, and the United States does not. So what Kim Jong-un did with his annual New Year's speech is basically say, look, we've got this fantastic nuclear capability that we've been developing for years, and we believe that it's very strong uh, and that we can deter and destroy anything that we need to with it. And so now we feel confident enough to reach out with the diplomatic overture uh, and to South Korea and try to talk with our neighbors who have been wanting to talk with us um, since this new uh, administration in South Korea, President Moon, came in earlier in 2017. And so what Kim Jong-un is doing is something that the North Koreans have always tried to do, which is split South Korea from the United States to weaken the alliance, which will open up more opportunities for North Korea, will relieve pressure on them, uh, and again, is something that is very detrimental to our efforts to try to rein in the threat from North Korea. And so, again, Kim Jong-un is pushing forward with a strategy. He's going to have these talks, it sounds like, uh, at some point with the South Koreans. They've already reestablished a hotline, which has been uh, dormant for the last couple of years to try to avert uh, a crisis with uh, South Korea. And Donald Trump's response is to tweet that his is bigger than Kim Jong-un's. Donald, Tr Donald Trump had a new tweet on Thursday morning, and this one was uh, less about his penis than the, the previous one. He said, with all the failed experts weighing in, does anybody really believe that talks and dialogue would be going on between North and South Korea right now if I wasn't firm, strong, and willing to commit our total might against the North? Fools, but talks are a good thing. So is he wrong? Yeah, again, I can't really tell you that foreign policy expert. It's what it's what's needed here to interpret this, but I'll do my best. 
I mean, look. Uh, yeah, I may have been yeah, wrong. I think I'm, but I'm was... just wondering, like, <laughs> why why would it be a bad thing that these talks are happening? No, and I think that that's a great point. I think that the talks happening is a very good thing. Uh, diplomacy is, frankly, the only way that we are going to address this threat. The United States needs to be engaging with diplo- in diplomacy with North Korea urgently uh, and at a very high level. So this is a very good thing, potentially. The big danger here, though, of course, is that, again, the North Koreans get what they want, which is dividing South Korea from the United States. If they are able to do that, moving forward with a separate dialogue with South Korea that is not well coordinated between Seoul and Washington, that is a very potential danger. And this is the problem, I think, in the president's response to the response from the administration is that they're all over the place. Secretary Tillerson is talking about the need for diplomacy. UN Ambassador Nikki Haley is saying diplomacy is not the time for diplomacy. And President Trump, of course, is tweeting left and right. And so, again, I think that the problem here is not the diplomacy. Diplomacy is good. The problem here is it doesn't appear that Seoul and Washington are on the same page. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but according to uh, your analysis from a moment ago, the reason the talks are happening is not because – Donald Trump is tweeting, it's happening because North Korea has reached a point in the development of their arsenal that they feel they have enough leverage to make the overture and be, and begin the talks with their with South Korea. Is that is that right? I think that's right. I mean, again, it's always hard to divine exactly what North Korea's strategy is, but based on their actions and Kim Jong-un's New Year's speech a couple of days ago, it seems as though they are confident enough at least for the moment, to uh, because of their uh, nuclear capabilities, to potentially sit down with South Korea. Um, whether or not this is the beginning of real substantive diplomacy that could lead somewhere, it's impossible to know right now. But it, without a doubt, it's uh, a good thing. And again, just to point out, you know, President Trump's tweet this morning taking credit for, you know, uh, these talks happening because of all of his bombast and bluster, of course, is, you know, just as uh, credible as him taking credit the other day for, uh, you know, uh, civil aviation safety um, uh, this year. Uh, um, and so, again, I think that it's just trying to take credit for something uh, that's happening outside of his control. Well, here's why it seems important to talk about Trump's tweets. They actually represent a significant portion of the diplomacy that exists between the United States and North Korea, because all we've got is that office in a Hallmark above a Hallmark store in New York City where you know the the New York Channel as it's called where where there's like a couple diplomats meeting on the slide right isn't isn't that it right i mean we have a few different um potential mechanisms to talk with the north koreans the new york channel being the the primary one um but fundamentally you're right we don't have high level regular channels of communication open with the north koreans i mean to be honest for recent in recent months at least it seems by all indications that um, the North Koreans have had very little interest in talking to the United States. Um, that may be because they were waiting for something, maybe because they're still waiting. It may be because the, they don't know whether or not the United States is actually interested in talking. Um, but absolutely, I mean, President Trump's tweets are, of course, the highest authority in messages that we have going from the United States uh, to North Korea. And again, I think this reaffirms for us what Kim Jong-un is trying to do now. He thinks that he can reach out to South Korea, the government of whom, by the way, President Moon there, is inclined generally and has been for a long time 
more liberal governments in South Korea to engage in diplomacy with North Korea. Um, they want to do it, generally speaking. And again, President Moon's administration, frankly, is terrified of the United States and President Trump. Um, and so again, Kim Jong-un, I think, is trying to reach out here to peel South Korea off from Washington, D.C. Uh, and they see President Trump's tweets as, I think, frankly, a green light for them to do that. So how concerned should people be? And this might be a question for a psychologist as well. Um, but about this idea that, you know, these types of tweets um, and this type of uh, kind of spatting between these two people, Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un, how concerned should people be that this is just going to, you know, cause one of them to get mad and press the button, as it were? It seems like, you know, that's that's kind of what people say is like, oh, man, he's going to make him angry and then uh, kind of both ways. And then something crazy is going to happen. We're going to get bombed because, you know, Trump tweeted something mean. Is that do you think a possibility? <laughs> or is that just, you know, people being paranoid? Um, well, I'd say first I wouldn't run to the, uh, you know, the bunker, underground bunker just yet, um, you know, look for 70 years or 60 years since the end of the Korean War in the 50s, we've lived with the potential for a uh, an outbreak of a new Korean War. Um, for the last 10 plus years since North Korea got nuclear weapons, we've been living with the prospect of a potential nuclear war with North Korea. There's always a level of risk with North Korea um, uh, just baked into everything that we do in the region. What these tweets and what President Trump's policies are doing, though, is raising that risk. Is it raising it to an astronomical level where, again, you should hit the, you know, the underground bunkers? No. But raising that risk at all should be a terrifying prospect because what we're talking about here is nuclear war. Uh, and so, again, I don't think everyone needs to be terrified quite yet but the longer this continues and the higher the tensions go, the more of a risk of not that someone, I think, pushes a button just because they want to do it, but because that there's a miscalculation and one side reacts to something else uh, and that spirals into more actions by, by each side. And then we end up in a place that we just can't uh, claw ourselves back from. That's the fear. All right. Mike Fuchs foreign policy expert with the Center for American Progress. Thank you so much for calling in and, and telling us about how soon we might all die. Uh, Elise Foley, Arthur Delaney, my, we'll be my back. My pleasure, sort of. <laughs> so that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by Mike Fuchs from the Center for American Progress, as well as HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, S.V. Date, and Luke O'Brien. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Please check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store, and while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.